Time for us to go ahead and get started tonight, if we can, please. We want to begin by uh, welcoming you to our services here on this Wednesday night here at Boonville. It's a joy uh, to be here. It's a joy to come into the building and not freeze to death outside, isn't it? But, and so, uh, anyhow, we are so glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, uh, you are our honored guest, and we want you to want to come back and be with us anytime that you can. We will assemble on Sunday morning at 9.30 for our worship service. And on, on Sunday night at 5 o'clock, we will have great classes for all ages. And we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. We don't have a bulletin this week, so I've got a few announcements you might want to kind of pay, pay close attention to. Uh, first of all, uh, some updates on our sick. Uh, Joey Pittman is scheduled to have cornea transplant surgery tomorrow in Birmingham. Now, any kind of transplant is serious, and cornea transplant uh, is, is really serious. So we want to remember uh, Joey tomorrow and pray for the success of this procedure. Also, uh, Sister Lynn Barragona is going to be going into the hospital tomorrow and uh, she has, her, her shoulder's been dislocated. They're either gonna put it back in place, and if that doesn't work, they'll have to do surgery again. But we wanna pray for her success. She's doing a lot better now that she's home, and so we hope things go well for her. Also, uh, we wanna express our, our deepest sympathy to Samantha Carlson. Uh, her grandmother, Vesta Curry, uh, passed away. Uh, and that funeral is going to be tomorrow near Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And uh, she passed away on Monday, and the Carlsons will be traveling there tomorrow for that funeral. So please pray for them for their safe travels. Let me make sure that I got all the sick that I had on here and maybe some others. I think that's it. Now, of course, uh, Brother Ken uh, Forrest is celebrating a birthday today. And uh, whenever you turn 50, it's a big deal. But it's not a big deal for him because he's not turning 50, right? He didn't turn 50. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, happy birthday to Ken, and uh, uh, we want to wish him a very wonderful rest of the day. As far as updates that I want to share with you, the ladies' Bible class tomorrow night at Anita Forest Home is being rescheduled for Thursday night, March 30th. She has laryngitis. That was a good birthday present for you, wasn't it, Ken? Right? Okay. No comment, huh? All right. So, ladies, that, that class is going to take place on the 30th. Uh, the Golden Circle, please pay close attention to this. Uh, we'll be attending the senior rally at the Henderson Church of Christ on Saturday. The event starts at 930. The bus will leave at 830. Uh, we have several who've already signed the list. If you uh, want to go on Saturday, you need to sign that list tonight. This is very, very important. And uh, this may encompass a few more than the Golden Circle, or more of you may want to participate in this. The Golden Circle is going to be going to eat lunch at Earl's Grill up in Crump, Tennessee, this coming Monday, the 27th. The bus will leave at 9.30. There's also a list to sign up for that in the foyer. So please make sure that you do that so that uh, we can get a number because they're very concerned there about having an accurate number uh, so they can be ready. Our annual Easter egg hunt is going to be this Sunday, March the 26th. Uh, lots of uh, candy stuff, plastic eggs are needed. Each family is asked to bring these and place them in the barrel in the foyer. Also, we continue to collect uh, items for the Boonville Middle School poop, uh, Food Pantry uh, during the month of March. There's two containers in the foyer along with a list of what's needed. Advertisements for our special day coming up on April the 29th and 30th are in the foyer. At least some are. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this particular day. Uh, you'll want to invite your friends and family and neighbors and school friends, work associates, and others to attend. Uh, we're going to talk about Dr. Sam Jones, our guest speaker, will talk about strengthening our families from the threats that we deal with in culture. 
We'll be talking about uh, addictions like drugs and alcohol and pornography. We'll talk about homosexuality and transgenderism. We'll also be talking about anxiety and depression and suicide. These are much needed uh, topics uh, in our culture today. This will be something that people in our community will be interested in. We'll have three lessons on Saturday, the 29th, and another lesson on Sunday to close it out. So uh, we've still got over a month to get ready for this, but uh, we need to advertise this well, and I know you'll do a good job. Uh, Lads to Leaders speech, uh, song leading, songs of praise, and oral Bible reading participants are going to Iuka this Sunday night, March the 26th. The services there start at 5. We'll take a bus for those who want to ride. It'll be leaving at 4.15. And we really need to know who's going, so sign the list uh, in the foyer. I believe that's all the announcements that I have tonight uh, for our devotional. Turner Foster. Okay. Uh, also, yes. After the egg hunt on Sunday, we're going to have a housewarming shower for Brian and Lexi Johnson from 2 until 4. It's a money and gift card shower uh, for their new home. Please text me that. Okay. And I believe that's all the announcements that I have. And uh, we'll now enter our devotional. The invitation song tonight will be number 800. Number 800. The song before the devotion will be number 470, Victory in Jesus. I heard an old, old story taking place? What kind of policeman would someone be if they didn't warn you about criminal activity? What kind of doctor 
uh, would one be if that doctor, you know, never warns you about a dreaded disease? What kind of preacher would I be if I didn't warn people about the reality of a place called hell? Now, I would certainly rather uh, love folks into heaven, but, you know, if I must, and all preachers that I know as well, sometimes we must inject the element of fear into the equation in order to scare them because that can work as well. Jesus probably taught more about hell than any other character in the Bible. You know, no competent fireman who saw your house on fire would respond, well, you know, it'll just burn itself out. Uh, no policeman who saw juveniles vandalizing your property would say, well, you know, you know, boys will just be boys. No doctor when telling you that you have cancer would just simply say, well, take two aspirin and you know, get some rest and call me in the morning. You would say that, you know, to respond in such a way would be to take your job not seriously at all. And a preacher would certainly not be taking his job seriously if that preacher didn't warn people occasionally about that very real place called hell. The Bible says in John 5 and verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil under the resurrection of condemnation. We want people to be saved. God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And therefore, with our desire to be like Christ, who was one that was always seeking and saving the lost, Luke 19, verse 10, and our desire to follow in his steps, we must tell others the, the good news about Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven that can be ours as a result of obedience to Christ and faithfully living for him. But equally so, we must warn people about that awful place of torment for those that do not obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. What about you tonight? Are you really concerned about the souls of other people? Where they're going to spend eternity if they continue life as they are currently living it? What about you tonight? Have you obeyed the gospel? Do you need to come tonight and make known your faith in Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins, confessing his name, and being immersed in water tonight for the forgiveness of your sins? Tonight, if you need to respond, we give you this opportunity to come while we stand and sing.
Let us pray. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this day that you've given us. Father, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity we have to come out and study another portion of your word. Father, we pray tonight you be with the ones that mentioned sick. Father, if it be with, in keeping with our will, let them have that portion of health restored they so desire. Father, we pray that you be with Samantha and, Aunt, and Aunt Adam as they travel to Samantha's grandmother's funeral. Father, comfort them and their family as you can. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who died on that terrible cross for our sins. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Trust everyone can hear me okay. Uh, we will, here in a moment, go ahead and begin our study this evening of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and as I mentioned last Wednesday, uh, next Wednesday, the 29th, I will be out of town. Uh, Samantha and I are going to have some relief and off time, so we'll be out visiting our family and uh, Missouri for that, and Doug will be filling in in my absence, and so I know he'll do a good job, and so I'm going to leave you all in very capable hands. But uh, chapter 7 of Romans is where we are uh, tonight, and we're going to look at some things that Paul has to say to the church there concerning the abolition of the Old Covenant, or the Law of Moses as we sometimes refer to it, and then showing the contrast there between that and the New Covenant. Uh, but before we uh, do that, uh, if we could please let us go ahead and bow, and we'll open up with a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. Our Heavenly Father, we come again. We thank you for all your innumerable blessings, both of a spiritual and material nature, and help us to always be mindful of those things. We thank you for this great privilege of being able to be here this evening as your people and for the purpose of further study of your word. And as we do so, may our hearts and our minds be opened and that we will come to proper understandings and continue to 
seek out those things which we may not understand as we would like. We thank you for the presence of each and every one that is here. We ask you to watch over and to be with those that are not with us, especially those who are struggling at this time with various physical ailments. We ask your continued blessings to be upon Lynn as she continues to recover and may be potentially undergoing another surgical procedure. We ask you to be with Luther as he continues to recover from his recent accident, and if it be your will that they both soon be returned to us, we know that there are others among us as well, whether directly or indirectly, and whatever their situations may be, we pray that your hand of comfort will be upon each and every one of them. We pray that you be with those of us who have lost loved ones, and that each will be strengthened and comforted as well, and may in all circumstances we ever look unto you. And for this we ask, and in Christ's name, amen. All right, so you'll recall from our study last week in chapter 6, Paul began to show and contrast the difference between being in Christ versus living for the flesh or for the world. And then he ends chapter 6, there with verse 23, the wages of sin of death, but the gift of God, that is salvation, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you'll notice in chapter 6 as well, and in verse 3, he uses this language, or do you not know? Well, we come down to chapter 7, and he begins that with identical language. Or do you not know? Or are you ignorant of this fact? Well, what is it that he is going to explain to them? So in verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at his establishment that they had been released from the law of Moses. Now, last quarter, when I was teaching this next door, the question was asked, is Paul writing to the Jews or to the Gentiles? Well, as the lawyers like to say, it depends. He writes this letter to both. Now, here, I believe, of course, there is application for all of us, but some of the things of which he is going to speak undoubtedly is directed to those Jewish converts that were in the Roman church. All right, he says uh, again, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that would be the law of Moses, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she had married an has married another man. Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Now what he's doing here, especially in verses 2 and 3, I want, I want to be clear about something. Now this is not, this particular passage is not intended to be a discourse per se on the subject of marriage and divorce, but what he is doing 
he is using that as an analogy to show the relationship between, I contend, the Jews and the law of Moses and then the law of Christ. Now, let me be clear as well. Now, there are applications from this concerning marriage and divorce, and there are other passages, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, for example, that I do teach extensively on this, and that is an important discussion to have. Uh, but that is not my intention this evening. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify that, but I believe we can draw that from the context. So here's what he's doing. If you, when you look at it in the figurative language, the Jews under the law of Moses, they were bound to God. Uh, for example, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5, there God is referred to as Israel's husband. Ezekiel chapter 16 uh, is another passage that shows that. So what he's doing here is he's showing that the law of Moses had been done away with, comparing it to the man who died. Being dead, they were free from it. And so it is in the marital relationship. When one party or the other dies, as the case may be, then that individual is no longer bound are obligated to that relationship. So that's what Paul is saying here. Because the old covenant had been done away, they, the Jews, were no longer bound to do it. And again, parallel that to the book of Hebrews in which the penman there, whoever he may be, establishes also that the old covenant has been done away and establishes the superiority of the new. Now back to this analogy of Israel being under the law of Moses, being bound to God, we know that also Israel violated that covenant. Well, how did they do that? By going off into idolatry and all of the other sins that came along uh, with that, and again, I'll give you some uh, passages here for reference sake. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And you can go to the book of Hosea as well. And you can see that established. And so in that sense, spiritually speaking, they had committed adultery just as in the marital relationship when one party or the other commits adultery, they violate the marital covenant and become thus guilty of the sin of adultery. However, this is not the case. Here in Romans 7, Paul is establishing that again, that covenant had been severed not due to infidelity, but due to the fact that that covenant had been abolished. And so they were no longer bound to it, just as the widow or widower, as the case may be, is no longer bound to his or her husband or wife. All right, and so we can know that's what he is speaking of in verse 4 because he says, therefore you have been, become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Well, we know that the death of Christ established the new covenant. All right, I know that's a, that's a lot to unpack there, so I'll go ahead and pause here for just a moment. Uh, do we have any questions, comments about any of that? Okay, so because 
just as, again, the widow or widower is released from the marital covenant, Israel was released or was no longer obligated to the law of Moses because it was dead in a sense. So, just as a widow may marry another man without being guilty of adultery, under the new covenant, we are, so to speak, married to Christ, Ephesians 5, for example. And so it was with the Jewish converts in the first century who left Judaism, converted to Christianity, followed Christ. They were then married to Christ and therefore free from the old covenant and therefore no longer obligated to it and no longer guilty of sin in that regard. So who were they married to? Again, they were married to Christ, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God, that is, living that life, showing faith at work in us. And there's that contrast again, verse 5, in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law. Now we're going to talk more about that in this context because he's going to go on to say in verse 12 that the commandment that is the law, that it is holy and good. He's going to say that. So we'll have more uh, to say about that. But we can see here what he has established. And then again, briefly, Verse 6, having died to what we were held by, well, in this case, they were held by the law of Moses so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That is, the forgiveness, the grace that is available under the new covenant. All right, again, do we have any questions or comments on verses 1 through 6? All right, so when we come here and we look at the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 25, sin and the law, he's going to make some statements beginning in about verse 13 that when we first read them can appear to be a little confusing and contradictory if we're honest. But like with anything in Scripture, once we look at it in context, we can understand it better. We might not understand it perfectly, but we will understand it better. And that's what we're going to see here. So he's going to go ahead uh, here, beginning in verse 7, What shall we say then? Much the way he began chapter 6. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Just as he asked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What was his answer to that? God forbid. He's going to say the same thing here in 7 and verse 7. Certainly not. So the law is not sin, but he just said, preceding this, that the law aroused sinful passions. For I... On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So he's asking another rhetorical question, as is his practice. So what he means here, and we can see when we put this all together, He's not saying that the law itself led to sin. What he is saying is that the law written as it was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai made them, that is Israel, aware of their sin. The law, it condemned 
and it taught. Remember in Galatians, again, he refers to it as a schoolmaster or a teacher. So that's what he is saying here. And to build on that, he gives that example from the Ten Commandments. And of course, he could have used any of those to make this point, but it was made fit for him to give the example of coveting, or that is the lust and the desire for that which does not rightfully belong to us. And of course, drawing from that, you can see that in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. There the original giving, Exodus 20, and then it being given again to that second generation in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So here he continues, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Now again, that's italicized here in the New King James. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, we'll go on through verse 12 here, taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Here he's employing the figure of speech of personification that is giving human characteristics and attributes to inanimate or non-human objects or being. And here we see sin being personified as one who lurks waiting to pray or to pounce. Because notice he says that sin took opportunity or advantage by the commandment producing me all manner of evil desire. And what he's getting leading up to here is to show that, again, it's not the law itself that did this, but rather their unwillingness and their inability to observe the law. That is, letting those temptations be succumbed to. That's what Paul is going to be teaching here. Because, again, he's not going to contradict himself. The scriptures harmonize perfectly. But again, where we go wrong is when we misunderstand the teaching of scriptures in their proper context, whether it be through our own ignorance or someone deliberately trying to deceive us. So again, if we can understand it correctly, then it will not be nearly as confusing. So to build on that, again, I'll take you back for a moment to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. God had created the earth, everything in it. He had created man, this indescribably beautiful habitation put man in it for the purpose of what? To dress and to keep it. But what other instruction did God give? You shall not... I'm sorry, somebody was saying it, I believe. You shall not eat of the fruit. That doesn't sound complicated, does it? Sounds simple enough to me. But what happened? One word was added to that to completely change the meaning. You shall not surely die. I give that again as an example that throughout time, God has given whether orally or written commandments to man. 
is there anything wrong with the commands that God gives? As Paul will say, certainly not. So wherein is the problem? The problem is our deviation from it. That's exactly what Paul is teaching here. He is not saying that the law caused him to sin. But what he is saying is that he sinned despite being aware of what the law instructed, acting in contradiction to it. All right, so as we, as we continue on here, you'll notice here that he uses the personal pronouns. He uses I and me. Now, this is just something for you to think about. There are, in the reading, it would appear that he certainly is speaking of himself. However, there are others who contend that he is using himself to stand for the Jewish people as a whole. Now again, draw whatever conclusion uh, you will from that. But it's quite obvious here when he uses those personal uh, pronouns. So keep in mind throughout the rest of this, and even though I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, when we get into, for example, chapters 9 through 11 here over the next few weeks, keep chapter 7 and verse 12 in mind because in chapters 9 through 11, he is going to be talking directly to his fellow Israelites. So remember, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. All right, so as he continues here, we look at verses, uh, the rest of the text here, 13 through 25. Has then what is good become death to me? That which is good is what? The law and the commandments of it. In other words, have I died because of this? There's our answer again, certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Now again, this may seem a little bit confusing, especially if we're not as familiar with the text. But again, in this context, it's quite obvious what he is saying. He knew what the law was. He knew the difference between right and wrong. Remember, he had been taught from the very beginning. You go to Philippians uh, chapter 2 or 3, and there he talks about his resume. Being born a Jew... Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He had studied at the feet of the great rabbi Gamaliel. Paul knew all of these things, but yet he's affirming that despite knowing it, he did the opposite of it anyway. So he knew what was good, but he did it as did all of Israel. And you can see that when you read and study the Old Testament. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Again, that concept as we, I believe last Wednesday, I believe it was uh, Luther J.T. mentioned, Second Peter there, Paul's second epistle uh, to them, chapter 3, and talking about those who had turned away from the truth, that what? It would have been better for them to have never known it than to have known it than to turn away from it. It's similar idea 
here. Now, he doesn't use that language, but that concept can apply here. So what he's saying is what made it exceedingly sinful is that he did it anyway despite knowing what the law taught about it. For we know that the law is spiritual. Well, why is it spiritual? It came from God. But I am carnal, sold under sin, carnal, that having to do with the flesh and the desires of it, being in bondage to sin. Keep that imagery in mind, in bondage to sin. Chapter 6, being freed from sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Now here's where it gets a little confusing. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. So we'll break that down a little bit. He knows right from wrong, but because of his carnal nature, he's saying that he does these things despite knowing that it's wrong. But what I hate, that I do. How many times have we, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be anything of a spiritual nature, but it would certainly apply, and I'm not looking for verbal answers, but just think within yourselves. How many times have we, I'm including myself in this, known perhaps what we should do, but we did the opposite of it anyway. And then we think about it in hindsight. This is what I should have done differently. That's the idea that Paul is getting at here. If then, 16, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Okay? So what he's saying is, now the law is good whether he agreed with it or not. Same concept would apply today. The scriptures are good whether we agree with their teachings or not. But what he is saying here in 16 is that it was good because knowing the law, he could practice it. We know under the new covenant what is expected of us. Therefore, we know that which we ought to do. Revealed just as the old covenant was revealed to Moses for Israel. But now, 17, here's the contrast. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not making any excuses here for sinful behavior. But what he is saying is that the desire outweighed that of the Spirit succumbing to the temptation. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. It's simply, he's simply stating that struggle between the spirit, that which is pure and holy, versus the flesh, that which is evil and sinful. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Again, showing 
perhaps how easy it can be to succumb to temptation. The bondage of sin. That's the picture that is being painted here. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is I no longer it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now again, we all have free will. We can choose what we do or what we do not do in a sense. But I will say this, that as a Christian, we need to remember as we looked at the concept last week and again the chapter 6 that freedom from sin is not license to sin so what Paul is leading up to here Again, all of this is to demonstrate that they were no longer bound to the law of Moses. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Well, what's that law that evil is present within me? That would be the old law showing, teaching, and instructing in what sin is. Then we come to 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, that is the spirit, the conscience, the mind. But I see another law in my members, there's the law of sin and death, warring against the law of my mind, spirit versus flesh and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And that statement, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, he's going to answer that question. I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. Freedom from sin in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So again, showing the superiority of the new covenant over the old. It was a teacher. It was an instructor. Remember what he tells them in verse 4 of chapter 15, that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. These are the things that we need to be learning. Let us be taught by it. So as we go on here in the time that we have remaining, let us remember again. Because this follows up with chapter 6. I contend really that it's a continuation, and I think if we, personal opinion of mine, that if we didn't have the chapter and verse division, some of these things might flow maybe a little more smoothly, but I understand why. Uh, those things were added as well. But we can still, regardless, put it all together in its context. So again, establishing that the old law has been done away. And we know that, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Colossians 2, 6 through 15, and multiple passages in the book of Hebrews, such as in chapters 8, 9, and 10 all show that the Old Covenant has been done away. So it's no longer in force. 
he shows its purpose is twofold. One, to make the recipients of it knowledgeable of what sin is. And two, to condemn that sin. And thirdly, to show that deliverance from that is found in Christ. And I will say this as we prepare to close out and dismiss for the evening as well. When we're talking about, and this is in a broader context, when we're talking about the Old and the New Covenant, let's come to the book of Romans. We can see that here in chapter 7 and those other passages that I just mentioned as well show that, but we can also show this from the book of Romans. And again, like with anything, once we understand something in its proper context, things become a little bit clearer. So as we get ready to dismiss, let's remember these things and let's try to apply them to our own lives, especially as we struggle with temptations, as we all do, your temptation may not be my temptation, but the concept is the same. We can overcome it through Christ. We have no reason to succumb to it. And so let us remember that. Uh, Jim, go ahead. Well, I think you made a powerful point about the uh, chapter delineation because if you go on to the first verse of chapter 8, it seems to be the summary of that argument. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's the victory that he's trying to convey. Absolutely. And I'm glad you went ahead and brought up chapter 8. Uh, again, I'm not going to be here to cover it uh, next week, but two weeks from today, God willing, uh, we will go on into chapter 8. Now, I will tell you, last quarter, when I taught this next door, we spent two weeks on chapter 8. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack, so we'll just see how far we can get, but I appreciate your uh, kind attention, as always, and your uh, participation, so uh, we will go ahead and stand dismissed.